Blog Talk Radio. gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Good Life Podcast with Mike Safosnick. Everyone listening knows my life revolves around a few things. Sports, traveling, reading, and documentaries. Four passions of mine. That's probably why I'm single. Uh, I've been lucky and fortunate enough to have interviewed hundreds of athletes, and I'm trying to broaden my horizons and venture out and interview more fascinating people, I guess. Maybe subjects of different documentaries, different authors. Now, despite my beloved Kentucky Wildcats set to tip off in 37 minutes against the hated Duke Blue Devils, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to talk to tonight's guest. He's on hold right now. Let me introduce to you former New York City police officer, the subject of one of the best documentaries I've ever seen in my life, titled The 7-5. I don't even know where to begin with him. Some insane life he's lived, but here he is right now, Michael Dowd. Mr. Dowd, thank you for calling the show, my friend. Hey, Mike. Nice to have you. Nice to be on. Where do we, where do we even start? Uh, we're going to get to that amazing documentary in a second. But first, what are you up to now? What have you been up to? Well, you know, since the documentary, I've had a, like a whirlwind of activity that I've been involved in uh, between promoting it, uh, getting sent out to Edinburgh, to festivals, and um, things of that nature. And a lot of podcasts, much like yourself, uh, you know, Joe Rogan, Artie Lang, Sue Costello, Nick DiPaolo, I can go on and on. But, you know, so it, it takes a lot of my time up, but at, at the same time, I'm trying to hold down a full-time job, so... Yeah, I'm a little busy with that kind of stuff right now. Life. Someone told me me you work for the police department again. Is that true? Well, I mean, I like to say that because the fact is that I've been involved with internal affairs on, uh, I I believe, and I could be wrong because I've been wrong before once in my life, (laughs) (laughs) maybe twice. Uh, They're coming out with uh, a a training, let's call it video, uh, that uh, uses my character and... Uh, for internal affairs in, in different levels. So it's not just a, a, a one-splash deal, more like for both supervisors and trainees and current, uh, really trying to get at the heart of you know middle 
five to seven year offices on where the decision making process goes and how we how we become calloused and, and turn to corruption like I did. Talking about coming full circle, I think you went, are you going to get your pension now since you come back with the department? Yeah, um, that's one of the things I was discussing with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, you're a funny, you're a funny guy. You know? I'd like to get my medical and my pension back too, much like my partner Kenny was able to escape with. You know, <laughs> unbelievable. Now this the some five documentary, like I said, it's incredible. I guess it, we can say it chronicles your life from cop to sadly convict back to civilian life how did it come about and who pitched the idea to you to even do the documentary okay so that's an interesting question i've asked it and asked a couple of times but it's nice to hear a, a fresh approach to it as you've had here because the fact is you know a lot, you know social media today uh, takes things in different directions and you know everybody's sensitive just like me you know and you know there's a lot of haters and bashers out there but the fact is this i had begun to move forward in my life i finally landed a nice job but, but well, let me back let me back step just prior to landing this nice job i got approached by these documentary people in, in california who uh, were aware of the Mullen commission and they wanted to do a special documentary about the Mullen commission which obviously i was a central figure of and i told them listen do me a favor if, you, if you're going to do something about the Mullen Commission, no one gives a damn. Am I are we free to curse on this show? I don't know. No, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, Mike. Well, I don't, I don't necessarily have to, but sometimes for effect, it's important. I said the Mullen Commission is a piece of shit. No one even understands it, knows it, or would even know what you're talking about. I said, but, but we gained so much press during that time based around the name Michael Dowd that you might want to do a story about the Dowd case, let's say. And I told them some things, and they went. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the hell with the Mullen Commission specifically. Let's go into the Dowd story. And, and the reason I said this, and, you know, to my own defense, was I'm not going to take part in something if anybody knows me out there, and quite a few people do. I don't take part in anything that I don't give 100% into, <laughs> no matter what it is. And <clears throat> in this case, I didn't want to be like another choir boy talking about some stories, and then they turned it into what they wanted to. So henceforth... They listened to me, which I wish the PD did back, back in the day, <laughs> and, and they didn't. And uh, they listened to me, and they came out with a damn good documentary. Some of it, I still argue the, uh, some points in contention, but, you know, it really was entertaining, riveting. I actually sat by the door. I don't know if I met yourself there one night. Uh, yes, yeah, so opening night, the first, the first one I, I met you. Okay, yeah, and I shook your hand, and you know we know some common people, and exactly. and I said to you, uh, I don't know if I said to you specifically, but I was like, my thing was, I sat by the door ready to leave because I didn't think I'd be able to pay attention because I'm like a gnat, I, I you know I've already been there, did this, and I was riveted for the entire what hour and hour and thirty, hour and forty minutes, so yeah, it was entertaining. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Were you happy with it, and how you perceived and portrayed? Were you happy with it? Well, listen. Who could possibly be happy that somebody <laughs> would execute a woman? You know, I don't give a damn what she did. You know, no one's happy about that portrayal, okay? <laughs> me in particular. However, if you ask me, am I happy about the way the whole, in total the documentary turned out? You know what? It, it gave people the sense and the feeling of the streets in Brooklyn in the 80s, and I'm, f I'm fair with any other disparaging statements and all that shit that, that's attested to me at that point, because I want people understand that we weren't bad guys that that took this job on 
it's just the street sort of morphs people. You know, in my case, it made me, and I, I, my own responsibility, I take my own responsibility for everything I did. It just sort of made me into somebody that I wasn't naturally given to be. But when I became that person, I became pretty good at that too. So, hey, whatever. Now, Mike, one more question about the documentary. Did you feel at any point maybe it glorified the criminal enterprise or maybe – because this is messed up and my mom and a bunch of people said that you came out – they wanted to go in there hating you from reading the stories and you came out likable with a – I guess you captivated them. Did you feel maybe it was going to glorify what you did maybe? You know what? That's 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 – that's that's a difficult question to answer. I didn't want it to glorify what I did. I just wanted people to understand what it felt like to be that young guy making the decisions on a daily basis and like, oh my God, I can almost understand why he did this. Not that it's excusable. Mm -hmm. I wanted people to understand that if you sat in my seat, what decisions would you have made? And I think that the documentarians that, that put it together... Ca- uh, capture that because you know what inherently you know there people do bad things but that doesn't necessarily make them bad people it's just that they've done something bad and i was hoping that that would come across and i think and i hope that i had a woman come up to me she was not, wasn't even an american woman she's from russia a, a good-looking woman <laughs> in her 50s <laughs> she says to me uh, at one of the screenings she says to me michael i really am not mad at what you did she says but that thing about the woman doesn't seem to be your character I said, thank you so much. I said, because really, the reality is it's not who I am. She says, yeah, I didn't think so. And then she gave me her phone number and asked me for a date. So I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't go on the date, you know, because I have things in my life that I'm dealing with. But, uh, but it was very nice of her to actually recognize that in my personality and character. So, hey, um, you know, and the people are going to complain that I'm full of shit. And, you know, I have nothing to lie about. You know, Mike, I've, I did my time. Uh, I, uh, you know, ask me anything. Put the put the put, put the, uh, the, the the lie detector test on me. Yes. I, I have no reason to lie. I'm, I'm good. You know what I mean? I did no. my time. Fuck you if I didn't do enough. <laughs> I did my own. You know, every day's long. <laughs> now, Mike, I have some. You know, not just, I'm. Tra- I listen to you on Opie and uh, well, Opie and Jimmy now. I listen to you on Rogan and stuff. Um, so I want to ask you three obviously generic questions, and hopefully we'll have some fun. Describe to everyone listening. East New York, when you were a 20, 21-year-old rookie in the 75 precinct, how was it back when you started? Okay, so when I drove down Sutter Avenue, I got transferred from Queens, where my first ticket I wrote in Queens, I, qua- I cried. I didn't want to write the ticket. I felt bad. <laughs> in fact, this is no lie. I, I crossed it out. <laughs> and the sergeant almost gave me, wrote me a command discipline for, for not serving the summons. I'm like, yeah, but she left. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean she left? Don't you... I didn't understand you. You're supposed to throw the ticket on the ground then. I, I didn't know. I, I felt bad. So he had to void like two summonses that I wrote. I'm like, this is really not for me. Yeah. So I walked back to the precinct later on. I'm like, oh my God. Anyway, and, uh, you know, quite a few little things happened in my first week or so. You know, I was drinking in the bar with some Colombian broad. Anyway, so... Which is not so important. That's just the way it was back then. And uh, so... So I'm like, I drive down Sutter Avenue, and, and, and I, I, I tell the story. I've told it a hundred times. It's my first day. It's like someday in like June 13th, 1983 or something, and I'm driving down Sutter Avenue, and In the Ghettos comes on by Elvis Presley. And I'm not kidding. Can't make mm-hmm. this up. And it's, 
and it's and a young man cries, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and the shotgun, and the, the guy tries to steal a car, and he gets blown away with a shotgun. I'm like, and a and a mama cries, and I'm passing Eugene's bodega, which I come to know later on. I didn't know at the time, and they're playing dice in the middle of the street at 6:15 in the morning. It's a like Saturday slash Sunday. I'm like, oh my God, I should have stayed in college. My mother was right all along. And here I'm already on the job a, a little over a year. You know, I did time in Queens. And I, I'm like, I got, I'm like, this is not going to be for me. I just, what am I doing? You know, but you're stuck. You feel stuck. So that's, that was my first, you know, impression of, you know, getting sent to East New York and like, oh my Lord. And that was, it wasn't even bad yet. The crack was like, I'm hit for another two years. Well, that's what I was going to go to next. It went from, not the greatest place to basically a war zone when the crack epidemic. Is that a good... It was a war zone, wasn't it? It was the most dangerous precinct in the United States. Yes, it was. I mean, you know, we did average 85 to, uh, to 95 homicides a year. However, the odd thing is, and people will hate me for saying this, they actually ticked up like 15% after I was uh, removed from the precinct. So <laughs> I don't know if you... that's a good thing or a bad thing, because every life matters, as we all know. Uh, yes, sir. But... <laughs> yes, uh, but it was ironic how, um, you know, people actually, and this is weird, some people have attributed to me uh, to holding down the murder rate because my involvement with the local people, and that's the truth, I'm not even, like, I'm sort of like, it's, it's like tongue-in-cheek, but it's actually, some people have credited me with a, that. A lot of, yeah, a lot of truth is said in jest, right, Mike? <laughs> that's what I hear, <laughs> so... Now, okay, now, obviously, you didn't start off with the heavy stuff, the stuff that's uh, featured in the documentary. What was the first, I guess act that started this snowball that eventually turned into an avalanche? What was the first act that was committed like, hey, this isn't bad, and what got the ball rolling? I mean, you know, I use two, two scenarios. We can go back to the academy where my friend made me lie on the report that I broke his finger between the two desks because he broke his finger at home doing some mechanical work. Or I can go to the first act where I took some money, basically, essentially, was uh, where some some Puerto Rican kid had no license, registration, insurance card, and switch plates, and you know we called it back then a Puerto Rican mystery, which was you know today it's like hopefully it's not a racial statement because I love Puerto Ricans, they love me too, but um, and I had a choice to make, and I you know I'm tired of fucking being broke all the time. This kid was you know 18 years old or less, he had a knot of hundreds in a in his in his fanny bag, and he had no papers, so I said, how about you get us lunch? And it started out with that, and, and the fact that I got away with him paying for my lunch, which is probably a hundred bucks a piece, me and my partner split. And um, at that rate, I was like, I, I was like, wow, I can't believe I just got away with this. It's pretty easy. You know? So yeah, now, you know, if they grabbed me then, I would have been like, okay, it's over. I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And you know, do I still have a job? No, you don't. But you know, see you later. Now, one story I found this. This is the last, hopefully, generic question I ask because I found this one story mind blowing. Do you mind telling the story, I guess we'll call it the duffel bag story, when you were circling the block? Can you, do you mind telling that story? Because I think that'll sum up everything that they need to know to make them want to watch the documentary or find out more about you. Because I found this part just spellbinding. Well, well, you know, and you don't even know all the details. But, 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 but the, I'm working with a woman who was put there by IID to work with me. <laughs> oh, wow, thinking. wow. Yeah, people don't even know that. This woman was uh, a transplant from the 114 precinct. They sent her over to 75. She came with a little, everybody, you know, and then who, you find out real quick in the, in the PD who's, who's who and who's what, and now she's working with me. 
Anyway, we come across a job. It's a burglary. Young girls are in the house. The doorknob's broken off, and we walk inside on the burglary, and the girls are just sitting hanging out. I go, excuse me, ladies, what seems to be going on? Well, our friend said we can hang out here today, and they said to me, I said, well, what's your friend? Where is your friend? Well, she's in Rikers. Oh, she's in Rikers. Nice. And what's she in Rikers for? Oh, I think it's drugs. Okay, good. So now you got, uh, you know, guys looking for collars. It's about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm like, I'm not looking for a collar. I don't know. I don't like collars. There's too much annoyance. Paperwork. So... In walks uh, anti-crime, and we're searching the house, looking for evidence of any kind of criminality other than these two girls who just broke it. And they were like only like, they were probably just young teens. Uh, I don't think they were 16 or 18. They were on the borderline of that. I don't know. I never found out because I didn't make the collar. And anti-crime wants the numbers. So they took these two girls away. And in the, mid- in the midst of that, we're tossing the place, and I see the shoes. I see the closets, and, 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 and an anti-crime guy looks at me, and he says, Holy shit, look at this bag of money. And I went, you got to be kidding me. Oh, that's ridiculous. We can't be vouching this money. <laughs> what are you going to do? The, the homeowner's not here, obviously. The homeowner's not here. What are you going to do? Voucher this money, take it in, and then give it back to them when they get home? I said, it's nothing. It's ridiculous. It's just paperwork. He said, oh, yeah, you're right. He puts the bag down, and I start fucking pocketing the the stuff from the bag as soon as he leaves the room. He turns her back around. He fucking goes, hey, Mike. I go, whoa. He, like, he caught me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, what's up? He goes, what do you got? Nothing. It's his real dirty money. I threw it back in the bag in front of him, and then I closed the bag up, and we both walked out the door. Now I'm like, how the hell? I had a couple grand in my pocket. I said, how the hell did I get this bag out of here? Now I got this female cop who has no idea what's in the bag. She's internal affairs, and I'm circling a block for about an hour and a half. I'm calling Tricky. He's off the job. He's got no fucking car. I said, listen, Tricky, can you steal one, rent one, buy one, do what you got to do? We got a job over here. He ended up, yeah, we got a job, we, we, got, we got a hit here, score. And we all liked scores back then. There was a lot of scores, by the way. Scores were good. You know, Scores were not an organized activity. Scores just happened, you know. So so anyway, he ends up putting together this, this, this gig with a guy who's retired also on three quarters disability. And, of course. Uh, yeah, and they they show up, and I'm circling the block every way you possibly can to make sure no one stole my money. And, and they pull up in their uh, uh, Firebird or what back then. It's actually just three quarters on the plate. And um, they pull up in front of the spot. They go inside. I see them. She has no idea who they are because she's not watching like I am. And they come out, and, uh, and I pull them over, and I go, how'd we do? They go, we got a bag of cash. Let's go. I go, wait. He goes, Atlantic City. I said, you got it. <laughs> I jump on the phone. I call the desk. Lieutenant says, I, I said, Lieutenant, my wife needs me at home. Something very serious is going on. No problem. Come in. I put in for lost time, which is, you know, half, uh, you know, t- half the shift. You get, you, you get to take some vacation time for your shift. Dropped mm-hmm. off internal affairs. Got in a limousine. Went to Atlantic City. Now, now there's always an so urban legend. That, yeah, or a rumor. What was that? Well, I'm sorry, Mike. There's always, like a, I guess, a rumor, an urban legend. You always hear that. The reason Mike Dowd got caught, or the reason people started talking, is because you didn't pick up your checks. Is that true or false? You know what? That's part of it. That okay. was part of it. What happened was I lost fifteen hundred dollars in Atlantic <laughs> City one time, and I had two checks still sitting in my um, in my uh, you know the box. There's a box at precincts where, they, where officers' checks get held before they come to pick them up. And what happened was the lieutenant who was trying to bang my girlfriend heard that I lost 15 large, and then he, when I went to pick up my checks, he handed me two. 
So he was like, you've got to be kidding me. This guy just lost 1500 He's got two checks sitting in here. And I had a brand-new Corvette out in the back. <laughs> so he sort of got a little annoyed. Yeah, Lieutenant, and you're making way more money than him. Now, listen to this, Mike. Yeah. You, wor- you worked in the 75, and you were transferred to the 94th. Did you know something was up for that transfer? And did you continue, I guess, your criminal activity while you were in Greenpoint? Well, you know what? That's not an accurate statement, but it's somewhat accurate. I went from okay. 75, I went to the farm for two years. Okay. So I did a little rehab stint for two years. And then what happened was, after two years, I was seeing shrinks for like months after months on end. And, and, and finally, I told the shrink, she says, listen, Dad, you can't keep going you know, to rehabs and stuff. I said, listen, I got a very bad problem. And she said, listen, you're not getting out of the job on a psychological disability, okay? You're going to have to go back and, and get out one way. She goes to me, one way or the other. Either you're going to get out on a, on a pension, normal, or you're going to get out under arrest, basically, is what she was saying. <laughs> so I go, okay, doctor. She was two foot, two foot three inches tall. It's my shrink. She was two foot three inches tall. Yeah, and I had to help her open the door. So anyway, so I said, okay, Doc, thank you very much. So she goes, okay, so at this point, two years have gone by. You're going back to, 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 to full duty. And I went, I can't believe these people are giving me my guns back. But anyway, what am I going to do? <laughs> so I go in, I see the shrink, and, the, and, 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 and he's 90, and he leaves my dossier, which, you know, every cop has a dossier. Mine was probably bigger than most. And uh, he leaves the dossier out on the table, and he walks like, you know, 30, 40 feet away to get my gun and my badge. And there... On the, I can, I can, backwards reading, I'm saying five allegations of selling narcotics out of a red Corvette. I'm like, holy fuck. Oh, whoa. They're giving me my gun back? This is not normal. So, so P.S., I went to the 9-4, and when I got to the 9-4, I really laid pretty low. And I say that for me, you know. And I really cut back on a lot of my crazy activities. But one day I get the phone call from Kenny Urell, the guy who ends up being the, you know, the hero in the end. Yes, yes, uh, good guy. Yeah, good guy. And he needs me to pick something up for him. And I make the deal, and then all of a sudden they're on me, and they're on my phones, and internal affairs, and in Suffolk County are working together. And 147 men later, uh, I'm I'm going home, and I'm, God, I'm being followed 24-7. And, like, people going, oh, you're paranoid. Maybe I am. But, you know, as it turned out, when you got 147 people assigned to your case, you know, paranoia sometimes is correct. You know, in this case, I was. Uh, And uh, the fact is that it turned into be, um, uh, you know, they were on my shit like white on rice. And, uh, you know, when your number comes up and they're on you, you're done. You know, there's no getting away. Yeah, if they want to get you, they're going to get you. Now, you're in the 9-4. Yeah, I mean, when they focused you, on it, you know, and, mm-hmm. especially when you think you're invincible. You know, I thought I was, you know, they're never going to get me. Hell, I did it for five, six years already. They're not getting me now. I mean, I'm very careful now. You know, so. <laughs> now, you're on patrol in the 9-4, and you get 10 would And for those listening, it's when the precinct, the station house, calls you to come into the precinct. It doesn't happen very often. When it happened, right. did you know at that moment the jig was up? Did you have that feeling like, this is it, it's, it's over, or you didn't know? Yeah, I sort of did. <laughs> I sort of did because I saw them following me during the shift, and they hadn't called us for two days on the radio. Oh. Like, we, we went on patrol for two days, and we didn't get our fucking sector call for two days. And finally, I looked at my partner as I'm driving back into the priest, and I go, did we do anything wrong today? And he goes, not that I can think of. I said, well, we did give a half a kilo to someone, but that's, you know, that's not really wrong. Oh, I mean, my you know, God. You know, what's so wrong about that? We just handed it to someone, you know, and he's 
Kenny, and he's going back to Long Island. So that's not really wrong. What else did we do? Well, I did get, just get an absolute seven with a twist of lime, about a 24-ouncer. Uh, that's okay, so we get in trouble for that. I'm saying, but this, this feels a little weird. So we actually drove the wrong way on, on Meserol Avenue, which is the first time I ever drove the wrong way on Meserol Avenue. And I see these two cars, and their lights come on, and I say, oh, boy, this doesn't look good. <laughs> Anyway, P.S., uh, you know, he begins to sense it. You know, Your antennas went up a little bit there. the gig is over. <laughs> now, you said something that I I guess a lot of people in the civilian world would have found, I guess, different. You said you were relieved and it was you had a great night's sleep when you were arrested. Was it just too much pressure nonstop, always on you, knowing you're being watched? Yeah, I was, um, I was much relieved after the initial arrest, yeah. It's like, oh, my God, finally, it's over. I offered to buy the guys drinks that were arresting me. Uh, we stopped at a bodega or something. I get you guys a beer. I said, I'm just so much, so much. I'm so comfortable right now. It's over. You know, I mean, comfortable. Of course, you're not comfortable. I had hand, my hands were cuffed behind my back. But, you know, it was just so much peace came over me. Like, the gig is up. It's over. Can I just go on with my life tomorrow, please? <laughs> you know, I arrested a guy one day. He shot and killed his best friend. And all he cared about was, can I, can I open my, my marijuana spot tomorrow? You know, oh. I sort of, like, he was done with his problem. He shot and killed his best friend who was robbing him and banging his girlfriend. I could, at that moment, I sort of identified with him. Okay, it's over now. Can I just go back to work and just be good? You know, that's how I felt. Now, so. Michael Dowd, did you know the severity of what you were doing? Not that what you were doing, that you were gonna, there was going to be this nationwide case front page of the newspapers, most corrupt cop ever. Did you know when it happened, like, oh, this is big, this is going to be in the papers, no, they're going to no, be talking about this no, the next 30 no, years? No, I didn't. And you know why I didn't? Because I've seen it happen time and time again. I mean, the, the internal affairs was in my house telling me they want to arrest somebody as I was trying to, like, be a good cop. When I was talking about someone who was selling drugs on Long Island, I said, there's a cop selling drugs on Long Island, and I want you to understand this. And they came to my house, and they said to me, well, we just want to make sure he doesn't come back on the job. And I went, oh, that's really all you people care about, is that no one comes, that like, a, a guy who gets in trouble doesn't come back on the job? So when I get arrested, I'm thinking, you know what, we're going to get a little small hit, <laughs> and I'm going to go back and be a major kingpin drug dealer after this, yeah. for sure. Because no, I'm good at that, you know. And yeah, you had your off-duty employment was. lined up. <laughs> yeah, I was good with that. So, anyway, so no, that's but... where we were at with those thoughts. And you know, I mean, listen, the, people write books about this stuff. You know, I'm trying to finish up a book right now. I've had a couple of road bumps here. I, I think I said something politically incorrect at a meeting. <laughs> Imagine that. And, uh, and so the, my book deal fell through just recently, but I'm actually still working on another one. And we'll see what happens. I'll be doing my uh, cigar business in Dominican Republic with Adam, the King of Brooklyn, the Seven Five Cigar. We'll be doing that shortly. <clears throat> I'm actually going down to Dominica next week. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in that respect. Now, you've been with me for 25 minutes, and I appreciate your time. Just give me a few more minutes because there's a few just random questions I always wanted to ask you. Make sure you what? plug the, the mic down, all right? I'll pl plug it right now. No, plug your Twitter, plug your website, and how to yeah, get yeah, the Yeah, well, it's called themikedown.com. Uh, and you know what it is? I, I, I have some ongoing projects there. I actually am engaged in uh, reaching out to police departments and helping train right now. And I'm doing speaking engagements at universities. And uh, so, yeah, those are, that's the avenue I want to take my future and my life into because, you know what? You know, if I have nothing, I have a gift to gab, and I think that because of that, I can share my stories and make people, even like, even even attorneys, e even doctors who who deal with, you know, public morality and, and corruption and things of that nature, 
I can tell him from you know fact on experience how it works. So yes, that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping to be able to do. What do you miss the most about being a cop? Well, that's a tough question. What I miss the most because I, I, I miss the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's number one. And, and let me let me just reiterate for everybody's uh, awareness. It's a sad day when you become a rogue cop because you'll never feel the comfortability of sharing in the loss of another police officer. It's horrible. It's the worst feeling in the world besides those that lost their loved one as a police officer. When you're a cop and you've done wrong like I have, you can't honestly share in that moment of loss in, 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 a, in a sincere way because you almost feel responsible, although it might, you might not be directly responsible to feel as though you've turned your back on the, on the brotherhood of police officers. So I miss that a lot. I miss being able to walk up to a cop and say, hey, how you doing? I, I used to work in the 7-5, or I was, I was on the job in the 9-4. You know, I can't say that because then they're going to go, oh, really? Well, when did you retire? You know, I, I don't want to lie. Yeah. You know, I sort of left the job in, in, in 92. <laughs> Because most cops either retire or they get a pension or they get disability or they go to prison, like me. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's not a good feeling. And, it, you know, I certainly miss the ability to, to be frank and honest. And, and, and this movie, documentary, documentary, has given me an opportunity to touch base with a lot of police officers. And maybe maybe they don't, like, sympathize with me, but somewhat empathize. They understand. So it, it helps. It helped in that respect. You probably heard this question before. If you go to a different precinct, if you're assigned to Midtown South or maybe a slow precinct like the 6th Precinct or the 9-4 to start off, does this happen still? Or have you ever thought about that? Does which part happen? Do, do I become who I am? Yes, exactly. Um, the likelihood is I don't become that um, outrageous and that, you know, people by nature, look for opportunities. I was supposed to be an accountant, a doctor, or a lawyer, okay? So when I settled into being a police officer, I realized that my income status and my level was never going to be what I envisioned it to be. So I looked for opportunities in real estate and, and things of that nature. And then the problem is uh, I sort of found, I found those opportunities within the police department as well. So, you know, I'm not going to be disingenuous and say I would not have done anything corrupt, but... If I had stayed in Queens or if I had gone to like the 105 at the time, I might have just enjoyed a successful career as a police officer. Might have. But you know what? You know, people have that little thing on their shoulder, the good and the bad. So I think the reality is if I had a good mentor with me who probably pointed out to me along the way where, listen, dude, you're going to give up a lot when you step over, it might have it might have stopped me, you know? So... Did you ever have any other... I know you have a big family. Anyone in your family ever join the job after you? Uh, not after me. Uh, actually, I have cousins and, and nephews and nieces that had. Yeah. But, you know, they try not to announce so, so freely that they're my... Actually, one was in the academy and said, Oh, that's my uncle. Uh, no. <laughs> and someone pulled him aside and said, You really don't want to make that a public knowledge. So. Because I was always curious, you know, you see last names. I was always curious if you see the name Dowd maybe 15, 20 years ago, they automatically associated with you. And if your family was ever on the job, they probably made it impossible for them if anyone was ever on the job. Yeah, I did have family members on the job at the time that I had my Oh, did you really? Yeah, and they got banged 
they got banged up a bit. Yeah, so, you know, they, they lost their, you know, whatever they were on. One was going to be a detective. He lost that. The other one was in the, in Queens, and, and they ended up just following, you know, making his life miserable. So he ended up actually getting pensioned off the job. So yeah, uh, oh. yeah it, it was yeah. And, and anybody that worked with me, like their life was miserable. You of know, course, of course. You worked with them, you must have known something. You know, I can only imagine what they went through half these people. Now I, I'm actually a couple of minutes of your time. Now I always, you pled guilty. And then why did you testify during the Milan Commission? I was always curious why you, like, I felt like you gave yourself like a double-edged sword. You pled guilty, you're screwed, you're F, and then you went before the Milan Commission, and basically it seemed like you admitted more. What happened well, with that? Well, you know what? That, you know, well, how that breaks down is this. I... I mean, you know, you know, the press is very powerful, right? So McAleary, this guy, this writer for the Post, the Daily News, and the New York Times, all in that time period, he wrote for these three newspapers. He was making me out to be a killer and all this kind of crazy stuff. And like, my lawyer says to me one day, he says, Mike, you know, the Model Commission has asked you twice now. Uh, to, uh, you need somebody in your corner. He said, so if you, you know, and I said, Fuck, you know, I said, listen, I said, screw them. I want nothing to do with them. All they care about is bringing cops down. I said, and I told them specifically, you're going to have a huge increase in, in suicides in the police department if I go and testify before the Mollen Commission and t tell you people what it's about. P.S., I was, one, right about the huge increase in, in suicides, and two, I had to, if, if I were to cooperate with them, I had to be fully honest. So... Uh, it was a double-edged sword, and, and, and they agreed that they would go before my judge and ask for the judge to be at least somewhat considerate in sentencing me as, as my, quote-unquote, helping the police department. So my lawyer's like, dude, that's the best thing for you to do right now because you're going to get fucking hammered if you don't do this. So, look, everybody's a survivor. I wanted to survive. I didn't want to get sentenced. At that point, I probably was going to get, uh, probably would have gotten 20-something years, I would think. And after, after my, uh, and I, I'm just guessing, okay? I could be wrong, but I, my plea was 10 to life. And my guideline parameters probably would have put me up into the 17 to 20-year range. In fact, it did. But, you know, the low end would have been 12. So the judge said, look, I'm going to give you something somewhere in the middle because Marlon Commission said he did a good job for me. So henceforth, uh, I got sentenced to 14 years. So there you go. You, you, you finish up jail. What is your first meal? What meal did you crave the most coming out? I wanted a steak, but I ended up with a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> oh, come on. That's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, because you don't go straight home. <laughs> you know, it's not like you think. You don't go straight home and you sit down at a banquet dinner. You know, you get released from a prison and you end up in a car or a, or a bus and you end up in a halfway house in Bed-Stuy, okay? <laughs> so, so one of my cousins picked me up and took me out for a hamburger at McDonald's. I'm like, please, just give me McDonald's. Because really, if you think about it, I haven't had anything as good as McDonald's. What I have three more questions for you. What does today's Michael Dowd say to twenty-year-old recruit Michael Dowd? He says, uh, probably the best answer is take this thing either serious as a job or get out. Mm -hmm. You know, take it serious with with the potential of, of a nice life in retirement or get out. One or the other. Take it serious or get out. You're doing a ton of media and podcasts. You mentioned the book deal, which that was actually my one of my last questions was going to be, we all watch movies and documentaries, and the books blow it out of the water. Why isn't there a book on you yet? But you said you're in the process now of getting a publisher. Is that in the works? You know what? I've had a difficult time. 
and the honesty is that uh, That's I think surprising. I said something politically incorrect to somebody <laughs> in a meeting, and they just walked away. I don't know the answer. I think also it's that uh, these big uh, old old school publishing houses don't really want to attach their name to a rogue guy and be mm-hmm. you know have him benefit be a benefactor. That's my opinion. Now. You're doing all this work. You're always out and about. When you get home, what is Michael Dowd? What's on Michael Dowd's DVR right now? What's your show you can't miss? <laughs> Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> always trying to make that buck, aren't you? <laughs> I love Shark Tank. I don't know what to tell you. I love Shark Tank, and, and, and you know, I watch Fox News, but you know, I'm, I'm sick of the, the, the whining on it, too, so I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> No, and I love the Mets, and I'm a big, oh. huge Mets fan. Oh well, you guys had a decent run this year, not bad, right? Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, listen, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Mets fan, I'm a baseball fan, so it's all good. Yeah. From the cops, a lot of cops obviously have seen the documentary, have talked about it. What is the feedback mostly from the cops? You know what? I would say for the most part. Um, they're actually happy to be able to associate in a, in, a, in a distant way to it because it's like, yeah, he's he's right. It was fucking crazy. You know, he's right. It was it was intense. You know, but he was bad, of course. I didn't do that. And you know what? There's a lot of guys who did, <laughs> but I'm not putting them out there like that. You know, there's a lot of guys who did. You know, the grab. A lot of guys did a hit and miss. Okay, but you know, it's like. <laughs> Anybody faced with an opportunity, here's a guy, he just, you know, left, you know, 40000 on the floor and ran. All right, you know, you go ahead and turn it in. It's up to you. But, you know, my, the difference between the, those people and myself was I actually created an organizational structure to get paid. Yeah, you did. And, yeah, a little different. But, I have to yeah. ask the one. I mean, and then a lot of the guys, you know, I did get castigated by a guy at one of the, uh, I don't know if you were, you actually at one of them, the screenings, the guy chumped me out saying, I was in the, uh, the uh, East New York, I was, yeah, yeah, I was in yeah. narcotics, and, and you know what, that's not what I knew about being a good cop. So what I really should have said to him, and I want everybody else to ask themselves, how many cops did you turn in that were bad? How about that mm-hmm. question? You know, you, you don't think of that when you're in the middle of a, a fray, you know. How many cops did you turn in that were bad? Because I know they locked up about a thousand of us. And you know what, in fairness, I was at that one. That was the one in the village, the first screening. And when it happened, a lot of people turned around and gave a dirty look. And it always bothered me, not because you didn't come back. I'm not picking sides. It's because you know the whole movie documentary. He was planning to ask you that question. and That's all he cared about. That's correct. It was very, very self-serving. I'm a gang. I'm a real cop. Oh. Yep, exactly. 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 He went there with an agenda, basically. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Now, my last question. He knew people who knew me and, like, Almost, listen, I get, I get it like this, you know, throughout my life. And I, I mean, I was in prison. People would say, I would hear stories. Yeah, I worked with Dowd. I, who was this guy? Well, he worked in the Bronx in the 4-2. Well, how the hell did he ever work with me? You know, because he's trying to bang my girlfriend or something. Yeah, I worked with Dowd. Yeah. I got a lot of people laid, I'll tell you, over the years. I got nothing for it. But anyway. <laughs> Every, everyone knows Mike Dowd. Mike Dowd's locker was right yeah, there. Like, like, yeah, I was a, a tw- I was a talking point in prison, okay? So, because every prisoner would come in, they'd go, oh, there's that cop, there's that cop. So now you're my friend, right? Because I, I just gave you the heads up on this guy's a cop. So now you and I have something in common. We know that this guy's a cop. So uh, I was a talking point in prison, and I've been a talking point throughout NYPD, and it is what it is. I, I love the guys and, and, the, and the women. They sacrifice every day. 
you know, and uh, I just hope that, you know, everybody gets together and starts, you know, just handing flowers out instead of instead of leaflets saying, I hate you, you know, <laughs> just, just let's get over this shit. And you know, Michael, Michael to help the public, you know, so it is what it is. After everything you've been through, we're going to end up with this. Are you at peace right now with yourself? Are you in a good place in every aspect? Like, are you okay with what happened? Like, I'm okay now. You know, I am okay. I mean, you know, life brings things on a daily basis. Everybody struggles with life, you know, life in general. But, you know, I had to go through this. And, you know, there's a reason for everything. So, you know, it's all good. I mean, I think it made me a better person, to be honest with you. I mean, there's other people that may not agree with you, with me. But, <laughs> but it really, you know, listen, it, that, those things that we go through in life make us who we are today. So. Plug your website again. Plug the documentary. Yeah. Uh, well, it's the Mike Dowd. You can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on uh, on Facebook. Any uh, you know, uh, Twitter, um, Instagram, and my website is still the Mike Dowd. And you know, we have things going on. We, we're always up to something. You know, I'll be in Dominica for a couple for a week uh, coming up, uh, checking out the cigar business. And then I think I'll be back there doing a, a live podcast for with Artie Lang from the Dominica. So we'll see. Michael, I just want to appreciate you coming on, your honesty and everything, and best of luck in life, man. Thank you so much. All right, Mike, you be well. I'll talk to you. Thank you, my friend. All right. Michael Dowd, if you're gonna, if you haven't yet seen it, just Google the Seven Five documentary, themikedowd.com. As a documentary freak, I watch almost one every night. It is fascinating. It, you shake your head. You're it brings you so it's a roller coaster of emotions. I recommend it to everybody when they ask me what documentaries to see. It's always one of the two or three I always recommend. Everyone, thank you for listening. Kentucky's playing Duke right now. The score is nine nine. I was gonna DVR it, but I'm gonna be pacing my apartment in a second. Thank you everyone for listening. And I believe on Friday, former WWF million dollar champion and manager of Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase Virgil will join the show. Thank you everybody.